How would you demonstrate the power of the kingdom of God? What would you do to flash forth light? For Jesus, it looks like miracles. Miracles that were anticipated from the Messiah, yes, but also miracles that demonstrated the ethics of God's perfect kingdom. Miracles that bring people peace and joy. Miracles that bring forth justice. Miracles that bring forth deliverance. Miracles that heal and restore. Miracles that allow people to experience God's presence. It's time. Welcome to Anakinosis, where we renew our minds towards biblical worldview and the scriptures. This is a show for anyone looking to build or repair their biblical worldview. Whether you're 100% comfortable in the current Christian culture, or you feel like an outsider looking in, everyone is welcome. My name is Jeremy Hagan. I'm just a guy with a Bible literacy background who has ASD and who thinks a lot about how to think. Today, we'll look at how Jesus' healing power represented the kingdom of God. Jesus has begun his Galilean ministry, but there's a sad side note we must examine. His relative and kingdom co-worker, John the Baptizer, has been imprisoned. This is in Luke 3, 19-20. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Heroditus, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. John had rebuked Herod for his scandalous sex life and was imprisoned for it. Now, which Herod is this? This is King Herod Antipas, the son of Herod the Great. He was the Roman head of the Jews. Remember, the Herodian family wasn't actually Jewish, but was from Udemia. Herod Antipas had divorced his wife to marry his brother Philip's wife, who had divorced Philip. These kind of actions were forbidden by the law of Moses. As the final Old Testament prophet, John the baptizer had a responsibility to speak out against those sins. John is locked away when Jesus' Galilean ministry takes off. Jesus knows he has limited time. If we remember back, Daniel had an angel reveal to him how long the Messiah's ministry would last before the end of sin offering. And it was three and a half years. Now, many people interpret that different ways. And we can still be friends. Here, in the official authorized story of Jesus, we approximate that one year of his ministry has been completed, which would leave two and a half to go. The good news must be preached. Thus far in his ministry, Jesus is not taught other than conversationally. His Galilean ministry fulfills a messianic prophecy of shining a light to the lost around the Sea of Galilee from Isaiah 9.1. Mark tells us that Jesus arrived in Galilee after John was arrested. Galilee is where Nazareth is as well. This is Jesus' home turf. Jerusalem and Bethlehem are down in Judea in the south, but Nazareth and Capernaum are in Galilee in the north. John 4, 43 and 45. After two days he departed for Galilee. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. 
having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So Jesus has gone straight through Samaria, spent some time in Sychar, leading people to himself and the kingdom, and now he has pushed through to Galilee. Jesus has said a prophet has no honor in his own country. However, generally speaking, Galilee is more favorable to Jesus, and you can see that in this passage. They saw Jesus in, Jer- in Jerusalem during the Passover, and they wanted to see more of him. They have celebrated his liberating temple cleansing along with the miracles and healings that he performed. Galilee is a welcoming region, but we'll see in Luke 4 that people will try to kill him there as well. So why would the author John mention that a prophet has no honor in his own country here? Because every word that is written down is chosen on purpose. Maybe John's preparing us for the future rejection of Christ. I tend to think he means to say that although Jesus is about to receive a friendly welcome, they are still not really accepting him. Impressed by his power, enchanted by his love, but not accepting him as the solution to their problems. What is impressive about Jesus here is that he goes to the places where rejection is certain. He doesn't dodge rejection like we might tend to. That is associated with his ability to trust in his own identity and not worry about what others think about him. Rejection didn't mean identity crisis for Jesus. Can you imagine that? And I don't think that means that rejection didn't hurt him. Of course it did, but he was able to shake it off rather than let his feelings turn into bitterness and sin that would devour him. All right, it's miracle time. John 4, 46 and 47. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So we're in Cana again the wedding location from the wine miracle that John called the first sign. This royal official has hunted down Jesus. He's probably a worker in Herod's court. This is the same Herod Antipas that has John the baptizer in prison. This man is from Capernaum, but he's come to Cana. That's about 20 mile journey. 20 miles on foot can take more than a day to walk. This is a long, hot journey for this man. And he does get to Jesus in the heat of the day at one o'clock and ask for his son to be healed. Let's read this. Let's read Jesus' response. So Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Jesus is using this opportunity to point out that people only gawk and surround him because of his powers. If we make Jesus in our image, He probably doesn't say this to this guy. We might have him just say, you got it. It reminds me of Mr. Beaver telling the kids about Aslan, the Christ figure in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe by C.S. Lewis. Mr. Beaver says, he's wild, you know, not like a tame lion. Jesus isn't tame, but he isn't John Wayne either. He isn't all bluster and macho-ness but he isn't going to waste opportunities to teach either. 
Jesus, is it really that bad that our belief is slow after seeing miracles? Well, back in Numbers 14, 11, God himself said to Moses, How long will this people despise me? How long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I have done among them? I will strike them. So Jesus is perfectly aligned with God the Father here with his untamed word. A faith built on miracles is not a complete faith. Many people hesitate to believe in Jesus without seeing a sign first. People's faith is in the wrong place, and so Jesus points that out. True faith can come without signs. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Can you imagine what he's going through? What's in his mind? He, he has to build up the courage to ask Jesus for healing a second time. It's almost as if he's saying, I know, I know, I need to have faith, not signs. But this is my son, whom I dearly love. It's my little boy. He's dying. I've exhausted all other avenues to save him. I'm in no emotional state to debate you theologically, Jesus. I just simply ask that you save him. Verse 50, Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. This calm statement must have caused crisis in the heart of the royal official. I know for a fact it would me. Jesus is requiring blind faith here. If you believe I will heal your son if I went with you to Capernaum, then you must believe I can heal him now from Cana. You must trust me. But the good news is that you can ask Jesus things more than once, and he's cool with it. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better, and they said yesterday at the seventh hour the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. And he himself believed in all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. This is John's second sign to tell the reader that Jesus is the Messiah. And again, like Jesus' first sign of turning water into wine, he doesn't have to touch anything. The workers pour the water and it turns into wine. Jesus says, this time your son will be fine. And he is. From 20 miles away, Jesus heals the boy. The man heads back. He's not going to see with his own eyes the miracle of Jesus for more than a day. But he believes in his heart that his son will be well. He doesn't drag Jesus to his son and make him touch him. He believes. That's a testimony to me. I'm sure this man's relieved when the servants come and tell him his son is doing fine. And to verify his faith in Jesus, he asks the servants, What time did the boy get better? And the timeline lines up. It was Jesus, no doubt. And this man's faith causes entire household to believe in Jesus. So what is the point in sharing this unique story? John is showing us that Jesus has the power to save no matter the distance, no matter the obstacles. His word has the power to work. We're simply just supposed to believe in it. Now remember the first sign wasn't just a miracle, but it was a parable of sorts. The water into wine represented a new covenant. This boy's Healing is the second sign. The boy was healed from a distance, 
The boy was not only healed, but he sees his father's faith and he believes as well. The first miraculous sign in Cana involved things, water changing into wine. The second miraculous sign in Cana involved people, lives being changed from death to life. This is the sign of Jesus. Now we jump to Luke's account of Jesus' story, and we harmonize with John's event in Cana with Luke 4, verse 14. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out throughout the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. We're going to pause there. So there's a report about him spreading around the region that were probably connected with the first two signs. He's back in Nazareth after doing a synagogue circuit. Nazareth is his hometown, and most scholars believe Nazareth only had a population of a few hundred residents at this time. It's much bigger today. If it was a small town, the synagogue time would have been a gathering of the whole town in one place. Well, let's think about synagogues for a minute and how they operated. Synagogue is a Greek word for assembly, and they were critical in post-Babylonian exile Judaism. People would gather together on the Sabbath, which is the seventh day, Saturday, and sometimes it would be in a home or a courtyard or a cluster of homes. Uh, A few times they would have dedicated buildings. From archaeological discoveries, we know people sat on benches in a square or a circle, often with mosaics on the floor. There would be a menorah and a manajar, Evidence shows that men and women participated in this time of fellowship and learning together. This model then was borrowed by the early church. So what did they do? They would have the scriptures read to them by the rabbi. Sometimes it was their local rabbi, but if they had a visiting rabbi in town, he would read. Or maybe an honored guest. Then they would have the local rabbi lead a discussion on the meanings and applications of the scripture. For the Jewish people, there was no point in reading without doing something as a response. And what scripture are we talking about? There's evidence inside and outside the scripture that the Jews were reading the Torah, the first five books of Moses. By the second century, the reading had become liturgical and systematic as they read through the Torah in a year, or according to some scholars, over three years. Somewhere along the way, they started reading the prophets as well. This passage indicates that this practice had already begun, but it's not 100% conclusive. Synagogues were Pharisee territory. While Sadducees and priests ruled the temple grounds in Jerusalem, Pharisees ran the synagogue circuits, and they had the power to ban people from congregations, such as lowlifes like tax collectors and shepherds. On this day, Jesus is asked to read, and he's handed the scroll of Isaiah, This lines up with the practice that was commonplace by the second century to read from the Torah and then read from the prophets. Verse 17, And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. 
And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. If you were in the synagogue that day, you would only understand what Jesus means if you know the entire passage by heart. Because Jesus is reading the first portion of Isaiah 61, which speaks about what many believe is the first and second advents of the Messiah. But he reads right up to proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor, but he doesn't finish the verse. He just stops and sits down. And everyone is fixed on his explanation because the rest of the verse says, and the day of vengeance of our God. Jesus, why did you cut that off? What do you mean? Verse 21, and he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming out of his mouth. Now, no regular rabbi would dare proclaim that they were fulfilling the words of Isaiah, of the Messiah. Jesus was making a claim both of being the anointed one, but also that he was bringing good news and God's favor and not God's vengeance. His words were full of grace. But this is his hometown. People have a hard time swallowing this major claim. And they said, is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do it here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath, in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. Oh, interesting. Not God's wrath, people's wrath. And they rose up, verse 29, and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. I've seen this cliff. It's major. Um, you, would get, you would get maimed badly or die depending on what rock you hit on the way down. Jesus has explained to them that he's not there to sit down on a throne as king and judge. It is the year of the Lord's favor because Jesus is going around telling good news and healing people. Now, the year of the Lord's favor had been associated with the year of Jubilee when all of the people's debts were pardoned. This is in Leviticus 25. That is Jesus' spiritual business. He is pardoning debts. That's what this is all about. God is showing his love here by not having the introductions and the judgments all in one package. Jesus will sit as king, as Isaiah explains, but not this time. Today, this has been fulfilled in your hearing, he says. His words of grace were, were, were something they could respond to favorably until they get to thinking about how they saw him grow up. Sure, Jesus was a strangely polite child and minded his mother, but the Messiah, the anointed one of God, come on, man. Jesus gets the we-know-you-too-well treatment. 
And he simply points out the prophets like himself are often sent to others because their own reject him. This is certainly true with Jesus. The two examples he give he gives are documented stories in the Old Testament. He mentions here instances where Gentiles specifically received God's blessing instead of the Jews, but they want to kill him. They look to kill him by pushing him off a cliff. I can't even imagine what it must be like to be hated so much that people want to kill you. I've dealt with angry parents before because of something that happened on a youth group trip or about things that were misheard in my class. Um, I hear from angry parents a lot as a principal who are mad at my teachers. When I'm hated or I feel hated, even for the briefest of moments, it's so taxing. I just want to quit. I feel like people are shooting me in the chest with bullets and I'm letting them do it because they need to be heard. And once they finish metaphorically shooting me, I can state my case and Lord willing win them back over. However, in the moment, I just want to grab my ball and go home to where people love me. But these parents don't actually want to kill me. They just want to hurt me because they've been hurt. I'm sure sometimes it's been warranted and other times not. Jesus experiences this to the extreme. Life on this planet is beginning to become taxing on Jesus. He, he has to dodge the people. And it really is a supernatural act of God here. He's trapped, his back's to the cliff, facing the mob, and somehow walks through them. You might want to read that again with a childlike imagination. What does that look like? I picture Jesus slowing down time to dodge people like in the Matrix. Maybe he simply just vanishes. Maybe they just stop. This is a pattern we'll watch develop through his ministry. Jesus goes to the Jews and they reject him. And then he tells them of Gentile participation in the kingdom and they want to kill him. But he won't be killed until he turns his life over willingly. No guns, bombs, chariots, javelin, bow and arrow, stones, or fall from heights can stand in the way of his appointment at the cross. And that's really something for us to be witnesses of here. Jesus can't be killed if he's not willing. He does have a date on the cross with a purpose to put an end to sin and to pardon our debts. And nothing is going to keep him from that. Year one is officially over. That was the closing statement. He has proclaimed the year of the Lord's favor. Can you imagine what's going to happen in year two? This is something he was doing despite all the ill will of others towards him. He's driven by unconditional love to love those who love him and to love those who do not, to love the unloving. As we continue to build our biblical worldview, we want to think about what in our minds needs renewed. Well, who is Jesus? This is a man of authority to proclaim either the year of the Lord's favor or God's wrath. He is the ultimate God-man. This is the man that we follow. The one who wasn't willing to die until it was the right death that would hold significance for you and me. That could end our debt. To proclaim the year of Jubilee. What love is this? Thank you for listening. Anakinosis is a project for anyone anywhere who's looking to renew their biblical worldview. Next time, 
We'll see Jesus begin year two.